All we need is a place to be And a few good friends for some company If you'd like to stay, you don't have to leave We'll leave the lights on and the door unlocked If you drop on by, you don't have to knock We're happy to share whatever we've got Hi, I'm Clay, and this is Yarn About You A podcast where I get to chat with people I know and love As well as people I'd just like to meet and hear their story Yarn About You would like to pay respect to the traditional owners of the land in which this podcast is recorded and acknowledge the Elders, past, present and emerging, for their contribution and wealth of knowledge that they pass on from generation to generation. Today's guest is Karen Peterson, a living legend of Australian theatre, film and television. She's a New South Wales Central Coast resident who's an all-round creative She's a talented writer, singer and historian who loves the nostalgia of yesteryear. I've known Karen for a number of years and I'm very proud to call her my friend. I hope you enjoy our yarn. Karen Peterson, welcome to Yarn About You. Thank you, Clay. Here we are in your beautiful backyard so we can hear the um, the kookaburras in the distance and uh, the crickets. But I always start at the very beginning, so I want to know all about you. Uh, tell me about your parents. Well, my father, Ralph Prutzeski, my mother, Ilse Prutzeski. I was born on the 8th of November 1947 in uh, Würzburg, in a hospital in Würzburg. In Germany. In Germany, near Frankfurt, kind of. And apparently, according to history, it was the coldest, coldest day for 50 years in Würzburg. And uh, my mother tells me that she was there with uh, me, the newborn baby in her arm. And right next to her was another woman with her newborn baby in her arms and apparently the best girlfriend of the lady came in and told the woman that whilst she was here her husband was having an affair. Nice, nice friend. Anyway, so uh, she walked out, the friend, the woman next bed just got up with her baby, went to the window, opened the window, and jumped out oh, with wow. her baby in this blistering storm, four stories up. So uh, that is kind of what my mother witnessed with having just given birth to me. And, and when she told me 40 years later, I could... Yeah, even feel sort of a the horror of this, and also the so-called well-meaning friends that want to give you good news. So, anyway, so I was born there, and uh, um, at that stage uh, we were living in this beautiful village called Randersacker on the River Main. Uh, near Würzburg. So you grew, you grew up in Germany? Yes. Um, and eventually you ended up coming to Australia. How did that happen? Well, um, I uh, 
I grew up, like I started growing up in Ranasaka and then when I was 12, I was moved to Hamburg, which is North Germany and uh, I did not like it very much there because it was... Uh, it was very Prussian. It was it was different. It wasn't warm and happy and schnitzel and things. It was more, oh yeah, you're in Hamburg now. So uh, becoming a Hamburger, I suppose, was a bit, I don't know. But uh, uh, my first holiday uh, was actually in Italy. So I fell in love with Italy. And I fell in love with a beautiful boy called Sergio. And he was my first boyfriend. How old were you then? I was 14 and a half, and he was 17 and a half. And he could not speak German, and I could not speak Italian. But love has a way, and that is how I learned to speak fluent Italian in about within about two years. When then back in Hamburg... Um, I uh, loved to go to one of the Italian cafes uh, called the Campari at, in Hamburg just to practice my Italian um, with the waiters. And, and this man was sitting um, two seats to my right. So I noticed like he was kind of watching. And, and I was just... Telling in Italian my heartfelt story that my mother doesn't understand me becoming an actress. She wants me not to do the breadless art. She wants me to become a clever little secretary, all in Italian. And suddenly this man moved closer and just said in Italian, uh, cannot help, I overheard what he say. I tell you what, you should always believe in who you are and in what you're doing and uh, etc. Encourage you. Uh, so I met Wolfgang, and uh, we got together. Now I was then uh, sixteen, and Wolfgang was thirty-three. Um, he was a, a very famous artist. And he looked like Richard Chamberlain did in Dr. Kildare also. He, he looked like, he was very attractive. And, uh, but one day, Wolfgang just turned around and said, look, I've decided I'm going to Australia. Are you coming? And I asked, uh, what language do they speak there? <laughs> I and 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 uh, oh, I knew nothing about Australia, and uh, but then I thought, hmm, what have I got to lose? I was not happy in Germany. I didn't even like my mother always telling me what to do. All my, or everybody was trying to tell me, going, do this, do that, and I suddenly thought, why not? So Wolfgang got my mother's permission very quickly. Yeah, you can go to Australia. And I remember the plane was uh, America, uh, Pan Am. Pan Am was the plane. And I think the flight was, we stopped was altogether 48 hours or something. And uh, then when it cruised over Sydney, 
I was looking down and I saw Sydney Airport and uh, it looked like a camp because it had all those Nissen huts, those Nissen huts that the, well, that the camps have. And uh, then it touched down at uh, Kingsford Smith and we got out and headed towards the Nissen huts and walked in and... And Wolfgang said, oh, look, uh, I'm just going to have a shower. You deal with emigration. I gasped and said, but I can't speak English. And you can. And he said, you'll manage, darling. So I was sitting there and suddenly I'm glancing around and and there was this kiosk that, and it had written on uh, gifts spelled G-I-F-T-S, and I froze because gifts means poison <laughs> in German. And I went, where have I landed? Oh, no. They're selling poison. <laughs> oh, my God. And uh, I got really quite scared. And then when emigration arrived, I was... I was told by Wolfgang to say, no, 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 Birnagilla, see, see, yes, 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 Sydney, because the question, of course, was, have you got contact uh, here in Australia? If not, you go to Bonagilla, the migrant camp. Lucky we had a contact, wonderful man called Earl White, who in those days was owned and was running the Mossman Daily, and we met Earl through his son, Ken White, who was a journalist. And we met him back in Hamburg when uh, we were invited at the Australian embassy because Wolfgang was famous. So as, as a new migrant, we were invited for like drinks. And there was Ken White. Um, on his way to get his brother, who's also a journalist, out of prison in Moscow. That's kind of what I remember. But I remember that Ken, the first Aussie that I met, beautiful blue eyes, just came up to me and just said, would you like a beer, blondie? And so I loved a beer and we became... Long, long life friends. So anyway, here in in Sydney, Earl White did come and he uh, sponsored us and uh, drove us over the harbour bridge from the airport to Mossman, where he put us into a bed and breakfast. It was uh, right round the corner from Tarunga Park Zoo. We had, I don't know, a cup of tea or something and then immediately went off to for me to meet koala bears and kangaroos. And that was, I had landed in, in Australia and now the only important thing was then to, how do I learn English? So if, um, if first of all, if, if Wolfgang was... Uh, an established artist. Why did he want to come to Australia? 
because he always loved Australia. He had a he had a fantasy. He loved the the stories. He loved Bergen Wills. He uh, he wanted to come out here and he wanted to paint, uh, which he did. You know, he 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 just was in love with Australia and. Uh, yeah, it was a passion. So it was just a fantasy. Yeah. So um, so then you, you landed in Australia, you got to see kangaroos and koalas, uh, but you couldn't speak the language. That's right. What happened? Because I'm very bad in learning from books or vocabularies. It was actually uh, back in Germany when I, um, when I moved from, again, doing a way back, from down south to Hamburg um, and was enrolled in another school. They had been teaching English in that school. Back in Randesaga, I was with the nuns and they had not taught English. So I was told, well, you have to catch up on the, on the English and, and learn that. Now, after six months or so, they just called me in and said, look, uh, now... Uh, we, you're excused from 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 the English, and uh, we just hope that in your future you will never, never have to do anything with the English language because you have absolutely no talent for it. You'll never make it. And so back here, then learning English by throwing myself onto trains and buses and stuff and terrible paranoia because they were all looking at me and I was sure they were sort of saying something, yeah, look at the... But they weren't, I suppose. They were just saying, yeah, oh, shopping at the... Anyway, so uh, I over overcame this paranoia and uh, at the same time also was getting more oh, adventurous and uh, I found this wonderful pub um in uh, in William Street, the Gladstone Hotel. And uh, we uh, were actors and writers and journalists and uh, producers and crazy people and all of us looking for work and being very thirsty gathered. And um, so as I came in like a newcomer, um, actually looking for... Uh, somebody first as a Bob Sanders who was doing an ABC program called People to maybe interview Wolfgang as an artist. So I was like more a kind of explorer. And uh, but and through that I met Eric Taylor and uh, and I also met what was known the 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 Rat Pack of William Street which consisted just of people like Bill Hunter, Mel Gibson, um, Johnny Hewitt, uh, Roger Ward, the Rat Pack. And they were intrigued by this, by this little blonde thing uh, and the method I was trying to learn English. So they became very... Oh, look, darling, we are here to help you and uh, we'll tell you something. There is one word that, you know, if, if you use that, it's, it's the most polite word you could ever use. And here in Australia, you get by fine. 
And I was very gullible and yeah, and uh, thank you, thank you. So they told uh, they told me the word, and I said, "Oh, I will. Uh, well, tomorrow I'm going from Central uh, to Leichhardt with the bus, and uh, I, I I I will learn this word too." So got home, did my homework, and the next morning I here I was at Central Station and uh, already I had learned my line was oh yeah and the bus arrived and the, and the door opened and I smiled at the at the bus driver and I said oh hello uh, can you uh, can you please let me know when we get to fucking Leichhardt? <laughs> and the bus driver went oh how long have you been in this country, doll? And I went, six fucking months. <laughs> the other passengers were just gaping, if I remember. <laughs> but he just smiled and said, come on board, darling. And as I walked down to get my seat, he just turned around and said, and I will let you know when we get to fucking Laika. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Absolutely. It was fantastic. So what was your first gig or uh, in Australia? How did that come about? I tried to, because in, in, in Germany I, I, had, I had done, like with the Thalia Theater in Hamburg, uh, they had student things, like, you know, you could, you could enroll as a student. And since I wanted to do acting, uh, I thought start with a theater. Now back here, I mean here. Then I met uh, I met a friend, and she was an actress, and she she was English actually. And she said, "Well, you know, I am actually at the ensemble theatre, and uh, they do a similar thing. Would you like to to come and have a look and join?" And so I did. Uh, but again, English was still very. Mm -hmm, but I did get a part in 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 a in a production with uh, now, if I remember back, John John Kerr. I was a non-speaking non-speaking nurse, and just as well because that didn't sh that didn't matter whether I could speak English or not. Mm. Um, but it through circumstances, I couldn't continue that because then privately things happened, um, split up with Wolfgang and, um, but then the first, like, say, okay, um, I needed some money because, uh, I, I needed to make a new start, and I was given um, a lot of extra work on a show called Certain Women, which helped me then get some money happening. Um, then, at a certain stage, th through that I also met Joe Williams, the 7 to 9 Club, and somebody once said, hey, you need money? Why don't you go on Channel 10's New Faces? They pay 
$12.85, which in those days was a lot of money. I mean, especially when you were broke. And then somebody else said, oh, yeah, but she can't go because you're supposed to have never appeared on television and she's done extra work on certain women. Or and I said, no, no, that that doesn't count. Just 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 go and do it and and don't be too good so you don't get... And don't be too bad. <laughs> so I prepared myself for my Channel 10's new faces. And I was living in Balmain at that stage, and I made my way to Channel 10 and went in, and I had prepared two, two songs, one in, one in German, one in English, had my trusty little guitar there, uh, walked in, sat down, and just deep breaths and performed. One, the first song that I sang was a was an Austrian lullaby called Hi Chee Boom Pai Chee Boom Boom. And the next one was In the Morning of My Life. And afterwards, the first thing that happened, you get the, n- the panel of, of, of uh, that judges you. Yeah. And uh, on the panel was Bob Rogers. Uh, who's still who's still around? Yeah, great Bob Rogers. Anyway, he he just said, "Look, uh, Karen, I I really liked your performance, but I thought your German is atrocious." Oh. <laughs> Fair enough. And it led actually to a comment because uh, they, they had a little write-up in the mirror the next day because they were sort of saying, well, uh, since Bob Roger has been to Germany, he's become an expert on everything German. And it was John Mann who had to point out to him last night uh, to that, but Bob, Karen is German. And Bob was just going, I was being facetious so (laughs) it left a bit of a bit of a little bit of publicity but then i of course went okay uh, where's my money and i was told the check will be in the mail and i was broke how do i get home i and i just wandered down and stood in the foyer and the commissioner of ch- of Channel Ten, he uh, he sort of saw the bit, and he said, "Can I help you, darling?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I'm uh, I'm broke. I I need two dollars fifty uh, for the bus, not to Leichhardt this time to Balmain." And he lent it to me, and I promised, "I I, I will pay you back. I, I I will pay you back." And there, actually, I'd like to do a, just a little jump ahead and then we can come back because uh, that was 1968 and in 1972 I got the part in number 96 which was Channel 10 same building, same place so on my first day I hopped in my mini moak and drove there clutching $2.50 in my hand, walking in, hoping he was still there. And he was. Oh, wow. And I just went up and I said, hey, I told you, I told you I'll pay you back. 
And he just said, well, welcome, welcome. And he always looked like Father Christmas. Ah, so after the new faces, what was next? Because apparently the uh, the cameraman um, saw he, seeing my like long blonde hair and everything decided to uh, change things and make a big black background and the blonde hair and did shots like that. They were bored with the usual sort of black and white thing, which um, apparently left quite an impression, especially when I was kind of kept singing, close-ups and things like that. So the next day, I found telegrams under my door because A, I didn't have a phone and in those days, well, there were these telegrams and they were all offering me work. And uh, so I thought, well, I, I, I better let Actors' Equity sort out yeah, because there was a lot of telegrams saying, oh, we would love your boom boom to come to our boom boom and... And things like that. But amongst those that were boom, boom, uh, there was an offer to join Channel 7's club show, which was in those days, like it was run by Rex Mossop. And Channel 7 was doing a new thing where they wanted to get ethnic audiences in. So they... So what what was a club show? Was it like a variety show? No, it was a Rex Mossop footy show. Oh, okay. It, you know, it was all footy, footy, footy. Yep. And as a regular before me, they had a woman doing magic tricks, Merlin and things. But they now wanted someone and uh, the job they offered and I had was to appear once a week on Saturdays in a different national costume, singing a song in a different language for the ethnics. And um, so, because, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky, I speak, I speak uh, fluent, uh, what do I speak fluent? I speak German fluent, yeah, I speak now English fluent and, and Italian. And the rest, I had to kind of learn phonetically by just going next door to my greengrocer who was Greek and ask him to teach me, um, let's say, uh, um, the uh, Pireo song in Greek. And all the others, you know, like in, in, in French, Spanish, Russian. And uh, so I did that for... Ten weeks became a regular, um, and it oh, which was also like in the good old days, you know, Clay. When like your producer, which was Franz Conde, he was he was an Austrian, and because he lived in 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 Balmain, uh, too, he used to pick me up. He had a little mini, and then he used to pick up his floor manager who was a big guy so 
the big guy and the two in the little mini arriving at Channel 7, peeling out, heading straight for Rex Mossop's dressing room, where then Frank, uh, Franz, opened the, the bottle of vodka. We got out our smokes, and we were sitting there drinking vodka, smoking, raving, and there was somebody on lookout, and then came in, shh, the moose is coming. And we used to pack it all away and air spray the air and ooh, ooh the moose is coming. So we used to party at, at his... Uh, anyway, uh, that uh, lasted for 10 weeks until I did the German number, which this time I didn't have to learn anything. I didn't have to rehearse. I knew it. And I was going to do a song called De Lorelei, which is... Um, written by Heinrich Heine, it is uh, Ich weiß nicht, was soll es bedeuten, dass ich so traurig bin. That. Good. So, I'm sitting there, and um, we have a sound rehearsal, and I'm sitting there with all the other artists in the studio, and suddenly Franz Condi comes up running across the entire studio floor, comes up to me, looks me straight in the face and said, you bloody Nazi bitch. What? I said, what? Just turned and went off again. The others looked at me and asked, what was that all about? I said, I have no idea. Shocked, he came again back and did it again. And I said, Friends, what, 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 the, what, what? And he just, and the third time when he came around, he said, Well, yeah, it would have probably been your effing parents responsible for my parents being gassed in Dachau. So he had this, right? Wow. And I kind of went, uh, shock, or, uh, and then it was suddenly, go on. And this was live. This was live television. So here I am, and, and there's the microphone, and there is the costume, and there is me saying now in German, welcome all the German, and, you know, for this is lovely, lovely, Lovely song I'm going to perform right now, and you all know it, and it's called The Lorelei, which of course you all know was written by, and I suddenly froze. And then I went, <gasps> but fortunately our producer, our producer is Austrian, is German, uh, Franz, who wrote the Lorelei and the guy at the back Heinrich Heine Karen Heinrich Heine so that was the guy that um, had this breakdown with me being a Nazi bitch anyway so we did it and then the next morning I found the telegram that I had been terminated wow because of that so he must have had a big issue uh, with that 
Howsoever, at that stage, again, happily, the Gladstone Hotel, where you always drown your sorrows, or um, again, somebody turned around and said, "Oh, Karen, they uh, they're auditioning for 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 something uh, something called hair. Uh, I think you should audition." And I said, w- w- "What's it all about?" They said, "We have no idea." You know, nobody knows nothing. It's just something that Harry, Harry bought and pulled out, and uh, but uh, that's Harry M. Miller. That's Harry M. Miller, and the auditions are being uh, across at the Elizabethan uh, halls or whatever. So I don't know. Maybe the best way you could actually find out or prepare yourself is there is the American album out of a musical called Hair. So, and there's actually also photos of what the cast looks like. So why don't you have a go? So I went, and uh, when I got there, there were about 300 people of all ages, from 12 to 80 and uh, it was a mass audition, and we, as we piled in, Jim Sharman was standing at the door and handing each one of us a daffodil. And we thought that that must mean something, I suppose. So auditioned, um, was called back eight times, and finally got the part and now thinking back if out of 300 and the show required 32 that I actually got in would have been biggest lot of luck yeah. I, I mean I hit I hit the jackpot I suppose and I, and I, wow uh, being original hair wow and then starting rehearsals, the theatre wasn't ready, so we rehearsed in some sort of factory hall. And uh, we, we, we rehearsed everything except the nude scene. And one day, because there were, I mean, there were journalists there, Harry was there sometimes, Graham Kennedy dropped in, you know, all the future shareholders, they wanted to see how they that baby was growing. And uh, so one morning they said, okay, now, sorry, but go for lunch because when you come back, uh, yes, we will have to do the the nude scene. And yes, they will all still be here. So we all headed towards the pub. And did we get pissed? I mean, <laughs> I was... Uh, uh, Johnny Waters still sort of, uh, what did we get pissed on quickly? Pink champagne or... We, uh, so we all arrived back absolutely, uh, well, yeah, here we are, let's do the nude scene. And we were so pissed, I think, uh, well, we just took our gear off and there you go. And, uh, yeah, and then the big opening night and then two and a half, uh, two and a half years of it. Uh, from 69 to 71 in Sydney. Living at the cross, living around the corner. Um, 
becoming very becoming locals with also the ladies of the night of the cross uh, the radio station 2KY was just right next to the metro so whoever the DJs when they were on when on Saturdays after a matinee we went to the Rex Hotel to have drinks and and so when we came for the night performance the DJs used to go, hey, hello, here is Pissed again. Be a great show tonight. Good to see you guys. So we were family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was a it was a fantastic time. And then we moved with the show to Melbourne. And I had never I had never been to Melbourne. And when the plane took off and cruised over Melbourne and I looked down and I saw almost like a pattern of grits and streets going that way. And I just said, wow, is that Melbourne? Shit, it sucks. And next to me was Krina, who was a Melbourneite cast member, and she just turned around and said, well, KP, you know, you stuffed it. You're not going to sleep on my couch tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So how long were you in Melbourne? In Melbourne uh, until 19, uh, again, a year and a half. Melbourne opening was even bigger. and uh, Because, see, Harry was not able to bring hair to Melbourne whilst Henry Bolte was still the premier of Victoria. Because he said, uh, as long as I am here and as long as I am in charge, this filthy show with the... F word in it will never enter Victoria. And so Harry decided, okay, well, in that case, uh, Victoria can come here and he organized those brilliant bus trips on weekends where Melbourneites came by bus all the way from Victoria, came to see the show, and then drove in the buses all the night back to, and it was huge. Wow. But when... When when Balti left, it was all geared for Melbourne. The only thing was that uh, Harry had this big speech to us before, he, and Harry because Harry wasn't very tall. You see, Harry was was was, was a bit on the short side, so whenever he spoke to us, he had to be above us, and at times he even went as far as standing on top of a rubbish bin so he's above us and so he did this speech saying uh, oh well cast here we are you know now Melbourne here we come but there are really new rules and I'm gonna tell you exactly what they are because bad habits have been creeping in in the last two years here in Sydney because those fuck words in the script well you're making such liberal use of it. I mean, you stub your toe when you say fuck and this like that. And we have to curtail those fucks because it's now Victoria. So if any one of you utters a fuck out of the script, you will be fucking fine $2.50. And I don't give a fuck if you don't like it because this is my fucking baby. And I can get rid of you fucking not if ever I want to. So for fuck's sake, right? Then he noticed one of our lovely little cast members, Teddy Williams, 
who was just sitting there and he had a little writing block there and he was and then he suddenly went oh hey teddy what the fuck are you writing and teddy said oh harry by now you've already been fined 52 dollars and 30 cents <laughs> for every fuck you said <laughs> so we opened in 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 melbourne and that is where yeah it was the summer of 1972 that is where I met uh, my soulmate. Uh, that was apparently the summer where everybody fell in love because um, I met David Phillips, who in th in those days he was uh, a star in Bellbird. He played Steve Kozlowski uh, in Bellbird, but he was also in. Godspell in Melbourne. Around the corner was Johnny Farnham with Charlie Girl. Around another corner there was a a show called the Jesus Christ Revolution, which was an entrepreneur's attempt to beat Harry to Jesus Christ Superstar. And it was actually John Paul Young's first professional stage appearance. Now, Johnny F Farnham fell in love with Gillian. David fell in love with me, or I fell in love with him. And so it was where you fall in love. So hair, hair took up uh, most of my uh, of my life then. Hair was a massive part of your life. I didn't realize it went for so long. Oh well. You see, then, because after Melbourne, Hare went to New Zealand. And I would have probably gone with them. But we had one particular moment where, back in Sydney, where actually the, as, uh, the German, st uh, German star of the German Hare came to see us in Sydney. He was a big, big star in Germany and he actually was flying from Germany to New Zealand to film a commercial for French television, trying to work that out. Yeah, fair enough. And as they flew over Sydney, the air hostess actually said to him, do you know they also have a hair down there in Sydney? And he didn't know, so he changed his return flight doing a stopover in Sydney and came and, see and, and saw our show. And afterwards, we all got together and he stayed for a couple of days and we, we, we partied and, and he suddenly turned around and said, Karen, uh, how would you like to do hair in Germany? And, uh, he said, yeah, we're starting a touring company and I went, I would love it. And said, send me a contract, I'm in. And nothing much happened. And then suddenly, when it came to New Zealand, are you coming, are you not coming, where is that contract? Because had the contract not arrived, I would have gone with them, of course, to New Zealand. And two days before the decision, the contract arrived, went, oh, okay, I'm doing hair in Germany now. Wow, haven't been back since. Came out here in 66. 
back for the first time in 72 and doing hair and flying over there and learning the show in German on the plane and having the privilege of playing the lead suddenly, Sheila, and learning Sheila's songs like Die letzten Sterne, die sind so verglüht and all that. Great. So, got to Germany and we toured little villages and we actually played in town halls, so to speak. Not like the big metro theater things that we had. Had a ball and but after after six months this hair company folded because there was another touring hair company that had been competition. So once they played actually like 20 kilometers apart from one another, one had to go. So hair finished. But because I had a contract, the producer, who was a Swiss lady, said, okay, uh, I got another show, it's in Munich, it's called Godspell, and I'm going to put you into Godspell. And it's supposed to also be performing at the beginning of the Olympic Games. Munich, 1972, Olympic Games, wow. So I'm put into Godspell. And I walk in there. Sorry, I'm just distracted by the possum behind you. He's come to say hello. Oh, the possum is here. Oh, man, possum. Oh, take a photo. Are you in showbiz, Mr. Possum? Look at those eyes. I know, it's beautiful. Ah. I'll put that photo up on the Facebook page. Oh, yes. Uh huh. There he and goes. He's up gone. Whoop de whoop. Up hmm. we go. So, anyway, distracted by animals. Um, you were in Munich. I was in Munich and I joined the Godspell cast, and it was a wonderful cast. And it's great fun and uh, amongst them was this was this this fun bird she was she was uh, she was american uh negro uh fun a voice like like gold and we just had a great time and uh after the show we often used to gate crash discos or uh, go to oktoberfest and Oh, we just had a great time. And she, her name was Donna, and she uh, had a boyfriend called Helmut. And they got engaged. So Helmut from the cast, Donna. Uh, and uh, so Donna Gaines, that was, her, that was her real name, she then married her boyfriend called summer and she changed her name gains to her married name summer and anglicized it and uh, that's how she became our donna summer oh wow yeah <laughs> i and i still have like the cast recording from from our godspell show where she actually sings uh the part in there and you know you cannot deny Donna's voice and blah and uh, she was just great and yeah true star absolute true mm. star 
So how, how did he? How, how did you end up back in Australia after Godspell? Well, after Godspell, then folded. We didn't get paid, and uh, the producer uh, disappeared back to Switzerland, where she had a what we call a numerly conto. I mean, you know, so still owed us lots of money, but okay, that was that. And then I thought, well, it is actually time to return to Australia. But my return ticket that I had already from then, then the the travel agent went company went broke, ah. and so I was stranded. But thankfully, my mother lent me the money to fly back and arrived back here in Sydney in September 1972. Again, starting with nothing because I was broke. I, I, I had arrived. I didn't know where to stay. I didn't know what to do. I was at Sydney Airport. It wasn't the Kingsford Smith, Smith version anymore, and there were no kiosks with poison, but... At seven in the morning, you thought, who do I know? How can I, what can I do? And I knew that Jesus Christ Superstar was on at the Capitol Theatre with all my old ex-hairies, you know, all the friends there. And I thought, hmm. And I know the stage keeper, lovely Mort, he'd be there. So I waited till 10 o'clock. And I phoned the Capitol Theatre from the airport and said, Mort, I'm broke, I'm in Sydney, can I come in? He said, come on in, darling. So I came in and then the cast arrived and uh, they said, of course you can sleep on my couch tonight. And uh, so I was just sitting there and uh, and then watched the performance and... Uh, that night stayed with Margaret Figuccio at her couch and the next day they just said, would you like to join us? So I started off actually working backstage first on Superstar and uh, it was uh, John English who was, uh, well, we, we were all heavy smokers in those That's days, habit. Yeah. but John was... That he needed boy. a drag on the fag just before he went out there again to to be hung, to, to do the big hang scene. So he always said, Hey KP, you know, stand by, hand me a hand me a fag. So I used to hand him a fag, a cigarette, and he used to jump up on a and light it off those electric heaters and go puff puff, puff, hand it back to me and then go out and went, Jesus! Right? So, after weeks and months and months of that, I just turned around to John one day and I said, hey, John, you know, you owe me a carton of cigarettes by now. <laughs> and he went, he laughed and went, yeah, 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 yeah. And couple of weeks later he came in because his wife had given birth to yet another child because he had quite a few children so proudly he came in with a box of cigars 
and went, hey, I'm a daddy, and he put a cigar in everybody's mouth, including mine, and I'm going, oh, lovely, and I said, but still, you still owe me a carton of cigarettes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Again, a jump. I went to a Jesus Christ Superstar reunion uh, way back in, I think it was 2009, John was still with us, and it was held in Bondi with all the superstar people. So there we all were, and uh, I'm walking in, and there at the bar is John English, fag in his hand, having a drink, and I just went up, tapped him on the shoulder, hadn't seen him since Superstar, tapped him on the shoulder, he turned around, I grinned, and I said, hey, John, still owe me a carton of cigarettes? And he went, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> These are like now such happy memories. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So after Superstar, what was after next? Superstar, after Superstar, well, after Superstar, um, I uh, realised that I actually, well, there was still David, of course. And uh, so I, I missed David and David was missed me and I thought well there's, there isn't any work up here anyway so I went to Melbourne and uh, that's where Crawford's helped a lot because the homicides and Matlock and and all that helped and uh, in the meantime David who was also an actor we did um, we did well, we did movie together. Funny enough, the movie called Peterson uh, with Jack Thompson and mm -hmm. Jackie Weaver, uh, done by Tim Burstall. I did walk up to him on the first day of shooting and thanked him for naming the movie after me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but at the same time, David had already dabbled in some writing, and uh, so he had sent some stuff, some projects to um, actually I said look this is a great thing, why don't you send it to everybody and David was more, oh I can't do that I mean I can't send it to all of them I said why not because uh, if Channel 9 refuses then you still have Channel 7 Or and he didn't think it was ethical mm. but I said come on you know. anyway so he, we sent it to everybody, it was a play called Call for Susanna. Now, the ABC did not reply at all. Uh, Crawford was trying to change it into a Division 4. Uh, Grundy's now didn't reply. And uh, Bill Harmon sent a telegram saying uh, I would like you to hire you for my new project called the Unisexes. So we packed up everything. We moved up to Sydney and the Unisexes didn't last long. But Bill Harmon then said, okay, David, move into number 96. That's how 96 came. And then 
I kept pestering David. Why can't you write me a part into 96? I don't do nepotism. Anyway, uh, he managed to write me in. And for 10 weeks, I had this fantastic time with number 96 playing uh, playing an Italian. And uh, so that, that was all great. And uh, it was through 96 that we then managed to move up here to the central coast, um, buying buying this beautiful place with... Uh, possums. With possums. And rainbow lorikeets. And rainbow lorikeets. And kookaburras. And uh, what the, the, the beautiful ones, the king, king parrots, parrots. King yes. parrots, yes. So after number 96... After number nine, what, what are your memories of number ninety six? First of all, ah, oh, interesting. Uh, when I when I first arrived and walked in, I was greeted by Bunny Brook, who asked me, "Hey, do you smoke?" I replied, "Well, yeah, who doesn't?" And she said, "Well, because what 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 brand do you smoke?" I'm going, oh. I don't know, something like Escort or something. Ah, darling, up your brand, up your brand. And she explained if I would manage to smoke a cigarette in the scene, uh, I would get a carton a week from whichever cigarette company I was smoking. She said, but if I managed, perhaps by being a bit clever, to also show the packet kind of by taking out a cigarette out of the packet, then I would get two cartons a week. Bunny had it down to such a fine art. If you see the scenes always at breakfast when she's talking to Dory and then she has the cigarette there, then she picks up the packet and stuffs it back in there and then, yeah... D- Bunny used to used to get ten cartons <laughs> a week for her, so she gave me that absolute wonderful advice. And it worked. Yes, yes, because because uh, I d- uh, you know I mean smoking was no problem. So whenever you had to do a stress scene, you were just able to kind of you know to light it up and go. Oh, yes, Carlo, I know what you mean. And and he's puffing and going, yeah, we do know this. And especially Norma's bar was always just covered in smoke because, and everybody got their payola kind of thing. Yeah, yeah so, so that was that. Also, I remember that um, in like the, s- the seven o'clock in the morning uh, makeup, the early calls on Mondays after a weekend away. We all sort of used to come in and go, no, I'm not a morning person. I'm quite chirpy, shut up. How was your weekend? And Sheila Kennelly, who uh, still lives on on this beautiful farm, she was talking about when she was milking the cows and... You know, how this damn cow, she farted in my face. She was just having wonderful, wonderful stories. And everybody was just, yeah, it was a family. It was a, it was a, in a way a weird family because uh, 
because we knew what kind of show we were in. So it was, oh, we are really in, wow, in the most, well, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know television lost its virginity and, and uh, yeah, but, ah, and what's it feel like? Yeah, and so it was almost a family with a joyful tingle, if that makes sense. Uh, and and the uh, and the directors were just bliss, yeah. So um, and there's still such nostalgia for number ninety six. It just there's books that are being released regularly by friends of ours, um, Nigel Giles and um, Andrew Mercado. I know has, has released books and things about number ninety six. It just keeps coming back. I, I, I'm so I'm so amazed about it. And so grateful for it because because of that, it is something that this new generation, yeah, will and can share. And we are still alive, and we are actually we are actually being looked at like living legends, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah a living legend, just just. And 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 so many still around, and also because people like Nigel or like like uh, Ian also that have actually organised uh, um, reunions, and the first one we had because Joe Hashem, our lovely lovely Don Finlayson, who lives in Malaysia, in Malaysia. Well, he used to come out around about Christmas to see his family. So I think it was Ian who suddenly went, hey, let's have a reunion. This and is um, Ian McLean. Ian McLean, yeah, who is, you know, the number 96. But he, he uh, well, what he does right now is actually he shares on Facebook every day the synopsis of the episodes, mm. what went to air. It's incredible. That's the uh, Number 96 Appreciation Society. Yeah. And you can actually kind of follow, like, uh, he always has a photo of, of, well, let's say, with Les and so, and said, in episode so-and-so, Vera walks in and sees the, this, and then he joins that, and, and you kind of, if you have not never seen the show, you can actually go, ooh, oh, oh yeah, on, and he's, he's like a, He's put a massive deal of work into that. It's, oh, um, it's incredible. Absolutely. And, I mean, I've never seen any of my episodes. Um, and, yeah, I thought I, th I thought I never will. But it was, again, thanks to Andrew Mercado, who organised for me way back a very rough, on, on VHS, a very rough, copy with all the counters and blah, blah, blah. and it was actually the last two last two episodes that I was in that was my my farewell but it happened to have been episode 999 and episode 1000 which was of course 1000 was a master thing and so I'm suddenly seeing my work and then came um the final curtain call, when they did the final curtain call, I was uh, I was just stunned because I was invited to be part of it. 
And at that stage, I was with young doctors and I had to ask Alan Coleman permission whether I could go to Channel 10 and... Go to the opposition. Yeah. And uh, Alan said, oh, darling, mad if you don't, by all means. You know, even gave, because I was supposed to shoot there, even made room for that. And, And then I went... But what do I wear? And it was the young doctor's wardrobe lady that gave me the dress that I wore for the 96 farewell. So it was like, wow. Yeah. It was... But only recently, I mean... Oh, only recently since it all started with number 96. And every day I, I, I realize uh, it's, it's getting more and more reminded. People talk about it. The books were written. People get interested. It happens more and more things. And uh, So you speak, spoke about uh, the young doctors as well. How did that come about? Betty Quinn was one of the writers of Young Doctors. And Betty Quinn, like a lot of people now up here, she came up here, fell in love with uh, the Central Coast. And bought a house in Wagstaff, up there. Now, David himself, also being a writer on The Young Doctors, uh, Penny Cook up there had a house, so we started having dinner parties. Oh, and of course, we were talking about soaps, television, shows, writing. And it was one night that Betty Quinn actually looked at me and said, hmm, hmm, I, I just had this thought, hmm, and invented the character that I played in Young Doctors of Erica, the young German woman that marries Dr. Raymond Shaw, the senior surgeon, and uh, also developing a lot of soaps to you crazy storylines and everything, but also the one that my character got diagnosed with with MS and uh, it became a great fundraising campaign itself. And uh, again, it was, how long was I in it? Two and a, two and a half years. Uh, the uh, conditions of the studio were absolutely atrocious because it was filmed in Milson's Point in this building which had no air conditioning and uh, it was flooding uh, when it rained and the sets shook and and they had uh, like an out out you know when they have an OB van and it was very 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 primitive and because of uh, no air conditioning in the, in the hot summer and tin roof, you know. So of course we sweated like crazy, and even for one scene, we had to change clothes two three times, which made wardrobe and and makeup and so absolutely running frantic. And uh, at one stage, it was uh, there was a saying. And the saying was, we want to say, oh, we're ready to shoot. And then we used to say, no, hold it. We have a shining star here. And yeah. everything was held. And the makeup lady then came out and patted down the shining star. And then they started again. 
and and also like uh, anyway sweating and things. And one day, just just this 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 delivery van arrived, and they unloaded all those those ice con- now ice containers, and we went oh. Oh, thank you, thank you. And it just turned around to us and says, not for you, Mob, it's for the cameras. They're overheating. Oh, <laughs> no. So they got the ice thing. That was a pretty incredible cast, too, in um, Young Doctors. It was. It uh, started with Delvin Delaney. There was, uh, there was uh, Mark Holden. There was uh, Linda Stoner. There was Paula Duncan. There was... There was and because it was so... Cornelia Francis. Oh, the lovely Corny. Yes, yes, the matron. And uh, God, in real life, behind the scenes, she was so funny. She was so much fun to wicked sense of humour. And, uh, of course, yeah, Alfred Sander, of course, who... Uh, wow, I, uh, I was very lucky to work with him and... Um, he actually taught me chess, because in the green room, you know, when we're all waiting around, and and uh, he said, "Let's play some chess, Karen. Let's play some chess." And, uh, taught me chess, uh, and uh, oh, yeah. There was one thing when when I first started, uh, the makeup lady. I wasn't one of her favorite. You know how sometimes they have ma- have favorites, and and. Uh, she just went swish, 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 and you know, and that was it. Whilst with others, so I wasn't, I wasn't really kind of fond of Pat. And uh, one day, she was. That's right. There was a party, supposing to, I think, celebrate what a thousands performance or whatever. So it was a party, and Pat actually said, "Oh, oh, I got a son. He's." Uh, uh, he's got a band, and and uh, yeah, he's a musician. He's got a band, and uh, if you want, you know, he could come and maybe play at the party. And Ellen said, "Is he any good?" And she said, "Oh, oh, I don't know. I, 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 I just his band. So, you know, the son came and he played at that party, and Ellen turned around to Pat and said, "Funny name they've got." In excess, because <laughs> the makeup lady was Pat Hutchins, and of <laughs> course okay. it was Michael Hutchins, and in excess playing at this party. Wow! Again, such a connection, such a absolutely. I saw them live a couple of times. They were, they were an amazing band, and um, I know that they started working in pubs and all that sort of stuff. So they they were brilliant live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think Michael even had a a small walk-on part in Young Doctors. There was, you know, oh, is Michael here? Like Russell Crowe. Mm. <laughs> I mean, uh, Russell, Russell's mum was, I think, at that stage, either the cleaning, uh, cleaning, the st- cleaning lady at the studio, or and Russell had come in to, I don't know, pick up mum after school or whatever, and uh, and Alan said, oh. Uh, Hey, we actually got this this small part. Uh, do you think Russell can do it? Uh, yeah, and Alan said, "Well, we might even call the character Russell." So we've got this episode actually where there is Russell, and 
lovely Judy Lynn kind of going, you know. Now, where did you say the pain was, Russell? And there's this voice going, ah, oh, here. Oh, I thought it was on the other side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the beginning for everyone. <laughs> so you were on Young Doctors for two and a half years, did you say? Mm-hmm. But when, when, well, when the time came to, uh, when the writers sort of said, okay, no more Erica story. How but did Erica leave the story? Well, because we did the MS, it was a commitment that uh, Alan made with the MS Society and everything that uh, Erica was not going to die of MS because it was a story of hope. Mm-hmm. So... What happens? Uh, Dr. Shaw, her husband, is in surgery, is, is operating. And uh, Helen Gordon gets a phone call. Oh, no. Oh, no. Really? Oh, no, he's in surgery. Can't. This is like the episode of Erica's death, right? But... I was already written out. I mean, I thought, well, at least you bastards, you could have made me another episode to die. (laughs) So what they had conked up was that, you know, when Erica has has her good days and has her bad days and all this, but, well, Raymond, and she lost her baby, of course. It's also showing that with MS, you can fall pregnant and you can, all this. So Raymond bought Erica a puppy. He's got this lovely puppy. And one day, the puppy ran, ran out on the road, and 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 Erica ran after it to save it, and the truck got Erica, oh, no. not the puppy. Oh. So when I said, "Oh, did they slide Erica underneath?" The truck? Oh. Well, are you going to go go with a bang? Oh, oh, absolutely. And that was the classic thing was that because. Uh, we were shooting ahead, I, if I remember correctly, about six weeks later or something. So I'm already out of the show. And the night my death appears on, on the screen, right? The next day, I'm driving into Woiwoi to do my shopping. And I walk into Woolies with my trolley and towards me, in this aisle came this woman. She had a she had a toddler in her basket there, and she suddenly stopped, looked at me, and said on top of her voice, "You're supposed to be dead." <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm glad to say, because. I mean, the, the, some really believed you are what you, yeah, you're supposed to be dead. So, in regards to after young doctors, not much in regards I- I to acting because there was this thing like, as long as you are remembered as Erica in this show, we're not daring to put you into something else. Which is like, not for big roles, like big roles, you, it was the cream. But at that stage, I had discovered writing. And I was writing with David 
and suddenly there was this kids show called Search for Treasure Island. It was Roger Myram's was the big children's television thing. So we managed that Roger said, put a team together, David, write Search for Treasure Island. So he chose me and he chose another writer called Bob Loader. And suddenly the three of us are here in Wagstar in charge of putting together 26 episodes of Search for Treasure Island. Storylining it, doing everything, and then to be fair, you know, chairing the episodes. So you go episode one, Search, written by David Phillips. Episode two, written by Bob Loder. Episode three, written by Karen Peterson. Yeah, and it was big. Afterwards, then came another kid show we did. was called The uh, Escape of the Artful Dodger. We brought Oliver Twist and Artful Dodger here to Sydney. Yeah. And, I mean, they, they, were, they were all great. And, uh, okay, I have them all now on DVD, but, but uh, you can't... Like, the channels don't... don't show them again mm. um, they're in some archives so why not I mean what they don't make children's television at all like that anymore yeah. it, it fascinates me there's so many old um, nostalgic programs that they could put back on in some way shape or form these days but um, but yeah they, they, they just go into archives and stay there well uh, where I because all the Grundy shows, and I'm including all the ones like 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 Secret Valley, uh, Runaway Island, uh, Young Doctors, all this. When Rich Grundy sold his empire, so to speak, um, it was sold to Pearson's Pearson's television, Tearsons, I think, English company. That was sold again, and it actually ended up with Fremantle. And Fremantle has all of those in their archives. So the question was, that why not release it? I mean, they're still sort of going, why not release The Young Doctors? And we then got finally, via Vision, released the first 250 episodes but that was two years ago, and no sign of the next lot. And I'm sort of going, well, I started in episode 333, and I've never seen my, my work because I was always in the studio when it went to air. So it was, what is the problem? And uh, now it gets a bit complex because now they're all talking about stream. They're streaming, whatever that means. On the other hand, over in Germany, you can get, you can buy a Search for Treasure Island, Artful Dodger. It sold very well in Germany, in Holland, and you kind of go, hmm. you know, it's 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 we 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 did such great programs. 
So I'd like to talk to you about COVID. Yeah. COVID hit in the world, went to crap, but um, you were affected by quite a life-changing situation. What happened? How did you, how did this come about? Uh, the COVID or what happened then? What happened then? Ah, which then I actually called the three C's of my life. COVID, cancer, chemo. When COVID hap- happened, actually I was still reeling, we were all still reeling from the, from the big bushfires. We had those incredible bushfires. I remember standing on my veranda uh, New Year's Eve, I think, 2019, and Australia was on fire. And we thought, I mean, it was so huge. And then um, as we slowly recovered, kind of, we actually thought we'd pick up our lives again and uh, we we started, like, live music again. Like, we, we, we love to do live music at the at the Hardy's Bay Club. So, you know, we started and we did open mics and we did some songs and everything. And uh, we didn't realize that this was only a a two-week window we had because what was luring around the corner, we had no idea. So for two weeks, life had started kind of. Then bang came COVID. And then I was, I don't know, I, one day I, I just had trouble swallowing. And I thought it was reflux. So I made an appointment to see my GP. But that was the first appointment I had to make under COVID uh, regulations because it was suddenly you got to wear a mask and have you got symptoms, have you got this and you can't do this. And, and, and So with my mask, I went and saw my GP and tests were done. Wherever I went, I had to have a mask and the people that tested me, had a mask, so we were all masked. And then when um, the result was that, no, it wasn't reflux, it was actually cancer of the oesophagus. Um, Then came the usual, okay, this is now the game plan from here because we have to do this, we have to do that, we have to do which is hard enough under normal circumstances, but because it was always COVID, you kind of like, you felt like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm battling something now, but which is bigger, uh, COVID or my cancer? Or can I get the COVID whilst I have the cancer? And suddenly totally new adjustment, but, Scary in a way that you seem to have uh, not 
human contact in a way because all you're looking at is eyes and mask. People telling you what's happening, but because of the mask, it's almost like, oh my God, you're talking to robots or what? So then came the, um, you never got used to it. What was what was it like the moment that you found out when they said the word? The moment they said it's cancer, I thought, how long have I got? Uh, do I have to? Am I dying? Uh, how much time have I got? What do I have to do? put my affairs together, what, uh, how, uh, what, oh my God, I have to tell my son, no, not yet, and um, going to bed and trying to sleep and suddenly going, you've got something here, and, and actually feeling that you, you've got a disease that, that, that's going to kill you, and, and, and why, and, and how, and, and uh what did i do wrong or and then uh then you in a way you actually in shock so much in shock you go on autopilot because the next thing is when you then have to have get uh, talking to specialists that that have your results up there on the screen and you suddenly when they point out now this is and I had to always say to to them, please, please speak a language I can understand. Uh, I did not know what an oesophagus is or what a this is, and and I said, where is it? Where does it sit? And and they went, and and I'm looking at the screen and I'm seeing something. I'm saying, so that thing, that thing can kill me, uh, or that's gonna spread. And and uh, you learn about uh, metas metastas or whatever and, and I found I got more and more bewildered and more and more um, lost and I was surrounded by well-meaning people here but they also were talking to me a language that I couldn't understand or they were going no you should do this you and at one stage I just thought I'm lost until I I actually asked, can I, can I, am I allowed please to record you, doctor? You know, like like saying, Hey, I've got this phone and I and, and, uh, just learned about voice voicemail or voice recording. I'm learning all this and saying, Do you mind if I record it? Ah, oh, no, that's fine. And the moment I recorded it and was able to come home, play it back, and going, what's that word? Messed up with the... And going, Googling up the word, suddenly saying, oh, that's what it means. Okay, so what is it? And recognizing it and identifying it, suddenly becoming knowledge is power, Oh, well, now I know what I'm dealing with. Okay, so 
this could actually be to my advantage. And suddenly I was on top of things. And that was when I suddenly got very, well, I got angry and I said, no, you're not going to get me, you bastard. Now that I'm seeing you, no way. Oh, as long as I, as long as I live, you're not going to get mm. me. And it changed my entire uh, attitude, but it also changed, I think, before I was so vulnerable because out of fear, fear made me, <gasps> right? So I was very vulnerable. And the moment I suddenly knew, okay, now I understand, that's when I went, okay, okay, so that's the baby? Right, I'm fighting back. And that helped, obviously. Well, you said um, about the shock, and I, I imagine what the shock would be like. Um, and talking about the masks, I didn't realise until people had to wear masks how much you you can't understand when people talk with a mask on. How many times I had to say, sorry, can you repeat that again? Because you so much of your um, comprehension is seeing somebody's expression and somebody's face. So that must have been, yeah. I, I yeah, because, I mean, also the mask actually does muffle sounds anyway. And then, and you actually, because you yourself are in a bit of shock, you actually feel, oh, I'm running out of breath. You know, you kind of... <gasps> The uh, it's it's yeah it's it's even now I'm sort of saying well I'm only now just coming to terms with what we have been through for the last two years, but yet again I'm now going hey but. You're all forgetting the bushfires. You see, it's that short memory that I object to. Because I go, hey, that was... The floods. But the on the other hand, also to actually... Um, when I got my diagnosis of, of cancer, I had just lost very 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 close friend she had lost her battle with cancer whilst i battled my cancer other friends got cancer lost it so i'm i'm going okay like okay it's been a journey of 18 months 18 months of your life totally just you have you have you have uh, it's it's a new regime because every day you 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 have a treatment uh you can't drive so you you have community transport uh you have to take your uh like apart from the chemo introversion you also every day had to take chemo with tablets uh three in the morning uh three in the afternoon the only problem was the tablets were so big, and because you could not swallow, esophagus. Uh, you had to put the tablets in. Had to try to kind of uh, crush them down, and but then you know, so it was a new learning thing of, and uh, 
but you became a like a machine, you know. I mean, I have now keeping. Uh, you had to take notes, keep everything. I have now files that big with all my schedules and with all tick this, tick that, tick, tick, uh, taking this. Yeah, you get a break here, done this, and even now to this day, because I. I had to keep a diary every day, like, uh, you know, uh, my weight, um, um, my uh, how I felt and, and everything. And because I, once it all stopped, when, when chemo stopped, um, they actually said, well, could leave it at that, but... Your cancer is a nasty one. He always comes back, and um, we have a proposition. It's it's new, but it's actually what we call the chemo radio connection, which means that uh, it's a six weeks of 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 radi radio radiation every day. Um, Monday to Friday, and uh, once a week, added with chemo, a different chemo. And the way they explained it was that the chemo I had for eight months, according to the pictures, they said, imagine it's like that. The chemo, lo uh, the, the tumor looks like it has gone. And imagine it's uh, like when you, when you cut the grass. You cut the grass, but you know the roots are still there. So you tumor's gone, but the roots are there. But right now they are resting. They are in remission. They are resting. And we think if we now with radio actually attack and try to kill the roots before they wake up again and do this, that so it could be hasn't. We don't know whether it'll succeed or not. And I just went, well, fuck it. What do I have to... Let, let's go for it. I mean, if we can get this bastard to that point, let's do it. At that stage, because I have actually... Oh, in, in 2011, I had breast cancer. And I had radio. So I remembered what it was like when I'd had my first radio for breast cancer uh, here in Gosford. I remember walking in and seeing all these other people who were waiting for radio. And I recognized quite a few from around here. So I said, oh, shit, what, what the hell are you doing here? I didn't know. And that's when I said, okay, I declare we are now all radio stars. Because every day we come to our radio station and we are the radio stars. Now we all have to decide who's going to bring the next champagne. This was way back then. So when this new one came, I knew I did it once, you know. So when it was my first day again and I walked in and they're all sitting there, said, Oh, hello, I'm back, radio star, and made this introduction and. It helped a lot, you know. So we were all radio stars, and and then I thought everything I learned during this, because if you have community transport, 
so you get to know the drivers, what makes them be volunteers. You get to hear the story of other cancer people that get picked up, what they are. The and you have humorous moments and, and, and everything. So I, I started making notes. And I was going to write this paper for the Cancer Society, my experience to help others with warts and all, but also humour and things. How important is humour? Vital. It is vital. And uh, also that... Because, so if you introduce humour... And you see already like there is one person who really is crushed by it all and is uh, almost giving up. And if you can then actually turn around and cheer up and go, hey, hey, babe, it ain't that bad. And guess what? And and you see, oh, oh, yeah. So it's 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 a lifting platform. Oh, and because, yeah, everybody's different, but the f the fact everybody shared when it starts was that fear when you're alone and you go, this. Oh. But then, and, 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 and then, okay, I'll give you an example that uh, when, uh, where the, yeah, where the chemo is happening, they made the waiting room all beautiful with little paintings and butterflies and and they're all these knitted uh, beanies and hats and uh, if you if you're unlucky you lose your hair if you're lucky you don't it's it's half half you know it's anyway uh, so there was this little lady came in and uh, she uh, she had a face like a moon. Now she had lost her hair, but the, the whole face was like a moon. And she was, she was little, and she came in, and she looked at all these beanies and things, and, and she picked one up. It was like a barry thing. And she tried it on. And I said, and, and the lovely, lovely receptionist, he turned around and said, no, 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 you've got to do it the French way. And she's going, how? And we go, oh, yeah, and doing this, and hey, voila. And she's going, hey, yeah, hey, voila. Then she took it off, and she said, how much? And the receptionist said, it's free. And she went, how come? And she said, well because communities they actually knit and do these for free for you and she just grabbed it and she burst into tears and she said oh my god that is so wonderful so wonderful and that's when I thought well I know here they have a what they call a knit 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 and 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 chat thing but they don't know how that was received so I thought if they knew, if they would see how what they're doing there with tears. So I thought these are the stories. Yeah, absolutely. You know? It's wonderful. To tell and go, hey, it's all, it all, what you're doing there is just doing wonderful things. Yeah. And then 
Okay, on the other hand, like um, you got uh, your first chemo, there is actually a chemist there who is in charge of mixing your 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 liquid there, what whatever has to has been described to go in there. And and all the other things. So he came around the first day, he introduced himself and uh, he said, um, oh hello, I'm now I have to have to have to think, I think. I'm yeah, I think it was I'm I'm Dave. I'm the chemist. And I went, Oh, nice to meet you, Dave. Mm. So the next day when he came in, I went, hi, Chris. And he said, oh, and, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Dave. And I said, yeah, I'm sorry, but you look so much like the Bondi vet, <laughs> the Chris so-and-so, that. And he went, oh, continue calling me Chris. And he turned around and said, she's calling me Chris because I'm looking like the, you know. So that's again the, wow. So you're, f- you're family, and there's Chris, you know. You want to go on television, darling? And <laughs> yeah. So as, 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 as my memory grew more and more, I suddenly thought, I should write a book. And then I thought, as you always do, oh, what would the title be? And I thought, oh, how about... Mm, Independent diary of a mm, chemo queen, radio star, things like that. Yeah. Then I realized, which, yeah, I am doing this, but I thought if I was writing a book, it would take forever. Would it ever get published? What I've learned right now is actually something that I want to pass on and share right now to all the new ones that get diagnosed every day. So I thought, okay, the book will still happen, but I will make a Facebook kind of like chapter things with all the photos, mm-hmm. a page by page, yeah. You know, and uh, but then again came the moment when I went yeah into it and something. Else. Well, how do you do that? And having to, again, look it all up and study it all. So, but it's still there, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, okay, so COVID and cancer and everything put a total hold on it. I'm picking up again. But one thing I learned through actually now having had cancer is uh, I refuse to panic as I used to, oh, I must do that. No, I refuse to feel guilty if I didn't do what I maybe in the past ordered myself to do. Because I'm learning, okay, life is short, of course. And when you are, when you do the mathematics, I'm 75, and I'm going, holy shit, when I used to think of people 75, I thought, boy, you know, 
they're still alive. I mean, ooh, <laughs> old and... But in the realistic side, the way time rushes and flies, 10 years, they're going like nothing. But when you're 75 and you go, well, in 10 years, I would be 85 if I'm lucky to be still well enough or around enough. And that's when you go, no, 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 no. The years you do have, they're not plentiful but the ones you have you put everything into it everything you can every day and stop feeling like the silly things you used to feel like when 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 you said oh i was invited to this place but or to this party but i didn't really want to go because you know i mean i have nothing in common but i better go or she'll be offended Things like that. You sort of go, no, you really, what you do every day, you genuinely just do what you really want to do and not feel yourself coerced into, well, you should actually do it because it's the done thing or stuff like that, you know. And that, in a way, is, is, is almost like a relief because suddenly you go, oh, well, I can actually be, if I want to be, as cheeky as, as I, I always wanted to be. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, in a way, a life-changing thing, but where I consider myself very, very, very lucky is that, apart from the cancer, that I am still healthy. That that uh, I'm st I'm still I can walk. I can I can you know I I can because that once you lose your and you have to be in a wheelchair or or all other things, you know, I still can kind of now sit here and 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 smile at you and go, yay! Absolutely. Well, Karen, I just want to thank you for your hospitality and thank you for your possums and your um, lorikeets and kookaburras. I really appreciate your time. and I'm so glad we got to do this tonight. Clayton, so am I. That's mad. That was magic. That was perfect timing. Things happen for a reason. They do. They, they really do. do. Well, thank you very, very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yarn About You is a Centre Stage Creative production. Follow us on Facebook by searching Yarn About You or visit yarnaboutyou.com.au for more information about the podcast and our guests.